Someone sit over there. Bob said. Val, did you want me to announce that box in the back tonight or just next week? Good evening, brothers and sisters. Good to see you all this evening. We're here in the Lord's house to worship Him, and we are here because He's called us. So let's stand and hear Him call us with these words from Psalm 84. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Our hymn responding to the Lord's call to us is number 80. Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise thee. that saves me 
and the peace that from it flows. Help, O oh God, my weak endeavor, this all soul to rapture raise. Thou must light the flame or never can my love be warm to praise. Praise my soul, the God that sought thee, wretched wanderer far astray. Found thee lost and kindly brought thee from the paths of death away. Praise with love, see thou dis feeling, him who saw thy guilt born fear, and the light of hope revealing, bade the blood-stained cross appear. Praise thy Savior, God, that drew thee to that cross new life to give. Hell the blood sealed pardon to thee, bade me look to him and live. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee, cause thee from thy fatal Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispered peace. Lord, this bosom's ardent feeling vainly would my lips express. Though before thy foot so kneeling, Vain my softness prayer to bless. That thy love, my soul's chief treasure, love's pure flame within me reigns. And since words can never measure, let my life show forth thy praise. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we seek you and we seek your favor beyond all the riches of the earth and all the enjoyments of the world. Lord, help us never to forget that it was your grace that brought you down from heaven to us. It was your favor that prompted you, Lord Jesus, to die for us and to rise again from the dead for us. That it was your grace which makes you wash from us all our sins in your blood. Everything, Lord, in our redemption was bought in the result of your grace and favor to sinners. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would continue to show us that grace, that this evening as we worship you, you would fill us with that grace, feed us on it, We are still poor, weak, needy sinners lost and ruined by the fall apart from Your grace. So we pray that once again we would taste and see that You are good and gracious. Lord, we pray You'd fill our hearts with love for You. We cannot stir up our own affections. We pray that You would do this for us by Your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that You would conform us to Your will, make us more like Jesus Christ, We cannot do this for ourselves. Only you can, by your word and spirit. So, Lord, our eyes are on you, expecting you to work according to your good pleasure now. We pray that you would, even as you've promised. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's sing again together. Our next hymn is When All Your Mercies, Oh My God. The tune is slightly different. Um, It's completely different, actually, uh, from the one that's written in the hymnal. But it's a familiar one, so it shouldn't be too hard. your 
mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys. Transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. Unnumbered comforts to my soul, your tender care bestowed. Before my infant heart conceived From whom those comforts flow When one with sickness Oft have you with health renewed my face And when in sins and sorrows sunk Revived my soul with grace Ten thousand thousand precious gifts my daily thanks employ, nor is the least a cheerful heart that tastes those gifts with joy. Through every period of my life, your goodness offers to and after death in distant worlds, the glorious theme renewed. Through all eternity to you, a joyful song I'll raise. For all eternity's too short to utter all your Amen. Please be seated. Psalm we're reading tonight is Psalm 9. Psalm 9. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. That you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Amen. Do you have any prayer requests that you'd like to share or praises you'd like to share as we come to the throne of grace together? Donna? Praise the Lord. It's good to hear. What's that? Yes, I saw him today. He's... um, waiting on a procedure uh, to help clear out his lungs. 
this is just a side effect of the cancer, basically. Um, so he's waiting on that procedure. Yeah. He's continuing radiation. Um, and chemotherapy is next. All right. Let's go to the Lord together. Our Father, You are seated on a throne of glory in the highest heaven. And we, be- we bow before Your awesome presence with humble, reverent fear. At the same time, Lord, we approach You with confidence and boldness. For You are our God. You are our Lord. You are our Father. You've adopted us as sons in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've given us the right and privilege to draw near to You, to come boldly to Your throne of grace. Father, above all things, we would pray for Your glory. We would pray that Your name would be set apart as holy. That the whole world would join us in giving You the honor that You deserve. We pray that Your kingdom would come that the glorious reign of Christ would advance through the church, that Your kingdom would come in our lives and our homes and our families and throughout Your church, and that Your church would grow and expand and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom over over the whole world. Father, we pray that Your will would be done even as it's done in heaven, that we would be as quick to obey You as the angels are, as quick to follow through with Your commands as they are. Father, we pray not only for these things, for Your glory and Your kingdom, we also know that, uh, that, that You are the One who gives us every good gift. And so we would ask You for the things that we stand in need of. We ask You for daily strength, for daily bread for the rest that, you, that we need each night, for the health and strength we need for our work each day. Lord, these things are from Your hand. They are not things that just happen naturally. They are from Your hand. Father, we pray for the particular needs of our congregation. We pray for those who are sick. We pray especially for Frank and ask Your hand to be on him. We pray that You would give him healing. We pray that You'd give him peace of mind. Help him not to be anxious. Help Kim also. Strengthen her. Give her peace. Pray that You would be their comforter and their shepherd. That You would lead them through this. Father, we pray for um, the gardeners as well. We pray for John and ask for healing for him and Your will to be done in his life. We pray for uh, John and Carrie that they would together rely on the precious grace of Jesus Christ and have all confidence in His power to comfort and encourage and help and save. Father, though in many respects we have been disobedient and ungrateful and wandering from You, yet we ask You, Father, to forgive us of our sins and our offenses and our trespasses. We know our debt before You. We know that we are guilty uh, before You with a debt we can never repay. But we ask for forgiveness because You're a gracious God and You have have, uh, uh, fully paid the price, Lord Jesus, for our sins. So we ask for forgiveness of our sins. We also ask that You would uh, give us grace to forgive others. That we would not hold sin against one another, but we would be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving one another, even as You've forgiven us. Father, we pray that You would not lead us into temptation, that You would not lead us into situations where we would lose our integrity, where our soul would even be endangered from the threat of sin. But Lord, if in Your providence we are to be tried and tested, we pray that You would graciously provide the way of escape. Give us strength to resist the devil, to stand firm, to put on the whole armor of You, our God. Lord, we know You can do all these things for us. And we trust that You will do them all for us. Because Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. 
Amen. As we prepare to hear God's Word, we're going to sing again. This is a setting of Psalm 84. It's number 371 in the hymnal. Let's stand and sing. Genesis chapter 3 is our Old Testament text. Genesis 3, the whole chapter. This is the Word of God, so let's give it all our attention. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Then we have two New Testament readings. The first is Luke 23, 39-43. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. 
Come, Holy Spirit, with grace and favor, convince us and comfort us, humble us and direct us, chill our affections for the things of the world, and warm them toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray for His sake. Amen. Genesis 3. If you had to choose uh, one chapter as the most important chapter in the whole Old Testament, Genesis 3 would have a good claim to being that chapter. Uh, There are perhaps others that could vie for that position, but Genesis 3 would be one of the top contenders. Here we have uh, the, the groundwork and really the DNA for the whole story of the Bible right here in Genesis chapter 3. This is the acorn from which the oak tree of Scripture will grow. It's all, it's all here. So it's an important text for us on one level, just for our understanding of Scripture, of how God is working in Scripture, what the story of Scripture is all about. It's essential that we understand Genesis 3 to understand the Bible as a whole. But it's not just important for us to understand it uh, so that we understand the story of Scripture. Uh, There's always more than that, isn't there, right? The intellectual part, the knowledge part is essential to us, but it's also got to be something that we take hold of and trust in and live by. God says, blessed are those who hear the word and do it. Genesis 3, then, is essential for us in answering the question, what must I do to be saved? Genesis 3 tells us what our problem is, what the problem with the world is, uh, uh, what the problem with our own sinful hearts is, and also, wonderfully, what God's answer is. It tells us about Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's an important chapter. It's an important chapter for us to understand and to take hold of the truth of for for ourselves. Three headings this evening to organize our thoughts as we work through. Very simple, just sin, judgment, and grace. Those are the three headings. Sin, judgment, and grace. First, sin. Up to this point in Scripture, it's been good. Two chapters of bliss. Uh, But now it's all downhill from here, we might say, right? Uh, God's created His world. He's created it good. There's been no flaw in it so far. Uh, He forms the world, days one to three. He fills the world, days four through six of His creation. He crafts it as a place for His glory to shine forth, reflecting uh, sort of like an an earthly representation of His heavenly temple. He creates man in His image to be His... Uh, son to be his, his representative ruling over this kingdom that God has made. Uh, he, he makes man holy and upright and makes him for fellowship with himself. He forms man, enters into a covenant relationship with him, holds out to him the promise of eternal life if he obeys, gives him everything he needs to obey. Think, think about, just think for a minute about the situation in Eden, before the fall. Adam has absolutely everything he needs to obey God. His whole being is oriented towards obedience to God. He's living in sweet fellowship with God. And he just has to keep one simple command that it's entirely in his God-created nature to keep. Humbly obeying God and submitting himself to God. It's a world overflowing with the superabundant goodness of God. Then we hit chapter 3. Sin comes in. Where does it come from? Where does the evil come from? We see, um, as Genesis 3 starts, this new character slithers onto the scene, the serpent. Uh, We haven't seen this yet. Um, interestingly, the first, the first chunk of chapter 3, God is, God is conspicuously absent. Um, we know he's there, he's superintending it all, but he's not named. A Satan comes in, the serpent comes in. Where does this come from? Right, This good, perfect, flawless world, where is the evil coming from? We know evil's not eternal. Uh, we know that only God is eternal and the goodness of God. Where does this come from. Scripture doesn't explain it. 
It just says God is sovereign and God is good. And at some point, under His sovereign control, but not against His character. Right? Not, not, a, not, not, not a crime that He commits, but evil comes into the picture. Satan falls, and the serpent comes into the garden. We just need to trust here that God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't need to know why evil comes in or, uh, or how exactly it happened that in a perfect world evil came in. We just trust that it is under God's sovereign control. So chapter 3 begins, evil comes into the picture. The serpent comes in to the Garden of Eden. He comes up to Eve, the woman. She's not named Eve yet. The serpent comes up to the woman. And Adam as well. Adam's here. We don't know he's here till later on uh, because he's so passive in this event. But uh, the serpent comes up to the woman and, and starts asking her questions. Now, Adam should have seen this and should immediately have been uh, 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 there to, 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 to question this serpent. What are you doing in the garden? Adam's role, as we saw last time, is to guard this garden from all unholy things. But the serpent just goes right up to Eve, to, to, to Eve and Adam says nothing. The serpent comes up to, to the woman, starts with a question, verse 1, Did God really say, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's he doing to God's word? He's twisting it to make him sound stingy and tight-fisted. He's trying to, 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 to make the woman doubt the goodness of God. Interestingly, the serpent doesn't use the name that we've seen used so far in, in God's relationship with his people. He doesn't say, did the Lord God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord God, your covenant Lord, he doesn't say any of that. He says, did, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? That God made this beautiful garden for you, filled it with good things to eat, gave you an appetite for it, and then said, don't touch it and don't eat it? He's trying to say God isn't good. That's what he's challenging her to think. Well, how does, how does the woman respond? She doesn't fall for it right away. But her answer shows that her faith is starting to weaken. She says in response, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. You notice what she's done with God's word. Right? She, she does two things. First, she, she makes God's law more strict than he made it. And then she makes the consequence of disobedience less severe than he made it. God said, you shall not eat it, doesn't mention touching it. And then says, you shall surely die, absolutely, definitely die. Eve twists it, you shall not eat it, you shall not touch it, lest you die. She softens the blow. This is, this is what uh, we're always tempted to do, isn't it, right? We, we, we hear God's law, and our tendency is to make, it, to make Him more strict and demanding than He actually is, and not see that He's gracious with us and blesses us, that He's good towards us. And then also to soften the consequences of disobedience. This is what our hearts are always tempted to do. Again, at this point, Adam, he's standing there and hearing this serpent question the word of God. This is Eden. This is the temple, the garden temple that he's the priest over, and his job is to guard it. He should have jumped in there and crushed the serpent right away. He should have, he should have tackled it, strangled it, and thrown it out of the garden. He should have said, how dare you question the goodness and the authority of our covenant Lord. How dare you, serpent, tell us, suggest to us that we can judge what's right and wrong apart from God and that we can, we can be the judge and, 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 and put God on trial. He's the creator, serpent. He determines what's right and wrong. That's what Adam should have done. That's, I think, why the serpent was there. Meredith Klein, theologian Meredith Klein, suggests here that God actually was superintending this and actually had sent Satan there to be judged by the man and crushed by the man. 
We see this suggested later in Scripture. Um, it's in 1 Corinthians 6.3. Paul tells Christians, do you not know that we are to judge angels? God's design is that the fallen angels would be judged by His image bearers, man. Perhaps, I think, His design from the beginning. He sent Satan to be judged and crushed by Adam. This is exactly what Adam's supposed to do. But he fails. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. And neither does the woman. And as the serpent listens to, uh, listens to the way the woman has responded, the way she has uh, subtly shifted what God actually said, he smells blood. Um, and he, he strikes. He goes now for the, uh, uh, for, for the uh, killer blow. Um, he says, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. He outright contradicts God. He says, God's lying to you. He's just jealous. Doesn't want you to have what you could have. Doesn't want you to be on the same level as him. God is not good at all. And also, God is not the judge of right and wrong. You be the judge. You decide what's right and what's wrong. This is the root of, of all temptation, isn't it? For us. You decide. You be the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul. You be God. Adam and the woman keep on listening. They don't fight. They don't resist. The woman's heart is deceived. She looks at the fruit, the text tells us. Her eyes linger on it. Uh, it's the most beautiful and delicious looking thing she's ever seen. She thinks it will make her wise. She thinks it will make her equal with God, that it will give her power and pleasure. So she eats it. She gives some to Adam. Adam's not deceived. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's knowing exactly that this is rebellion against the Lord. That, that, that if he takes this and does this, that, that he, is, he, is, he, is, uh, he is rejecting God. But Adam doesn't care. He's chosen this. He wants this now. He hates the Lord in this moment. He wants to be God. How did this happen? God made Adam and Eve for Himself. He made them in His image and righteousness and holiness. Everything in Adam inclined him to obey God. And out of just his sheer decision of will, he chooses to disobey. It's high-handed rebellion and outright hatred against the Lord. So they sin. And that's it. That's the fall. That's the, that's the fall of all mankind into sin. Verse 7 tells us as soon as they eat this fruit, their eyes are opened. They suddenly realize that they're naked, that they're guilty and vulnerable and ashamed now. They, they, they try to cover themselves up and fix it, um, but, but all they end up doing is separating themselves under shame from each other and from the Lord. Their sin has brought guilt and shame to them. And this is not just for Adam and Eve, of course. This is the fall. This is the fall of all mankind. Adam's, Adam's representing you and me here. He's our representative. He's all the representative of the whole world here. And as he takes that bite of that fruit and disobeys the Lord, he's plunging the whole human race into sin and misery. The image of God is shattered. We become totally depraved. Ruined in every part by sin. That's how chapter 3 begins. Everything is just, everything is just blowing apart. How does God respond? This is our second heading, judgment. Verses 8 to 19 here, and then also 22 to 24. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is that terrible moment, right? Uh, when you know you are caught. 
when you see the blue lights flashing in the rear view and you know you were going too fast, right? or, or, or the, the little kid knows that his dad saw what he did to his brother. Right? This is that moment, and Adam and Eve, uh, they, they know judgment is coming. They hear God coming. Um, we're told here that they hear God walking in the, in the cool of the day. The Hebrew phrase there literally means the spirit of the day or the wind of the day. It's not describing a pleasant evening breeze coming through the garden. Uh, this is describing God coming in a storm of judgment on Adam and the woman. Uh, this, this is God striding through the garden, bringing the last day, as it were. This, this is, this is uh, the final judgment and the end of the world as far as Adam and the woman are concerned. God comes to judge the covenant breakers. First, he calls out to Adam. He says, where are you? Of course, God knows where Adam is, but he's drawing out a confession from him. Adam responds, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The Lord responds to him, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? The Lord is, 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 is putting him on trial. Adam, of course, won't own up to his sin. He blames the woman first, and then he blames God for giving him the woman. And again, this is, uh, this is what we do when we're caught in our sin so much of the time. This is our fallen nature now to shift the blame onto someone else. God doesn't really buy it, but he does turn to the woman next. He'll come back to Adam, but now he turns to the woman. She follows her husband's fine example, makes an excuse as well, blames the serpent. So the Lord goes to the serpent. He doesn't give the serpent a chance to speak. He knows who this is. He just brings the verdict down, and he punishes the serpent to humiliation, And he punishes the serpent with an unending war. A war that will end in his destruction and death. Then he brings, then the Lord brings a verdict against the, on, the, on the woman. She's also guilty and she's going to be cursed with pain and childbearing, with dysfunction in her relationship with her husband. Uh, uh, the, the, this, this is what, what God is doing, is putting a curse on the high calling that God has given the woman. He made her to have a good relationship with her husband and to bear children, to be fruitful. And now he's putting a curse on that. The very thing that she was made for is now going to be bringing her pain and grief and bitterness and disappointment. And then God brings his verdict on Adam and on Adam, uh, on the whole human race, really. He spells out clearly what Adam did. You listen to your wife instead of listening to me. You broke the covenant. You broke the commandment. He curses Adam's work. This is what Adam was made for, to work. Work was made to be a good thing, but now it's a cursed thing. Now it's going to be frustrating and disappointing. Now it's going to be sweaty work, hard work. And eventually, Adam, he says, is going to return to the ground and die. You're from dust and you're going to return to dust. And God is not just giving this curse to Adam. He's giving it to the whole human race, putting us all under a death sentence. God made us to have children and families and to work and to enjoy it, but now it's all been cursed. God made us to live, but now we're going to die. And worst of all, God made us for himself, but now we're cut off from him. At the end of the chapter, the chapter ends with exile. They're sent out of the garden. They were made to be here in the presence of God, to eat of the tree of life and live forever. But it's done now. They're exiled from the garden, the temple of God. The tree of life is shut to, uh, to, to them, and there's this fiery angel with a flaming sword guarding the way. If anyone's going back to that tree of life, they're going to die on that sword. So God brings judgment. Justly, he should. His image bearers rebelled against him. But even as this is all going on, right? we might say, well, this is a pretty bleak chapter. Uh, sin comes in, judgment comes in. Um, but, but there's a gospel promise here. There's a glorious proclamation of the gospel here in this chapter. It's not, uh, it's not dominant, but it is there. 
and it's, uh, it's vital that we see it. So this is our third heading now. Grace. Grace. Two verses in this chapter especially that I want to look at that preach the gospel here. The first is embedded in the curse that God puts on the serpent in verse 15. God says, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God could have ended it all right there and just brought death to Adam and to the woman, but he doesn't. He he extends grace to them. He doesn't kill them, which is what they deserve. Instead, he promises them a child, that life is going to continue in some, in some, some kind of way, that Eve's going to have a child, and that, that there are going to be descendants, and that one of these descendants is going to crush the serpent, who's going to be what Adam should have been and what Adam failed to do, defeat the serpent. How? Through suffering. This child of Eve, the descendant of the woman, is going to defeat the serpent by crushing his head, but at the same time having his heel struck. This, is, this conqueror is going to defeat the enemy through suffering himself. This verse is what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. God is promising a Savior. He's giving Adam hope. He's giving the woman hope. He's saying, the judgment I'm giving you is not the last word. There's gospel. There's, there's hope for you. That, that this covenant of works I made with you is broken, but here's a covenant of grace. That I myself will send someone to perfectly keep this covenant of works and that you can receive it by grace through faith. Adam and the woman deserve eternal separation and the wrath of God, but instead God gives them hope and grace. It's not a second chance. Sometimes I, I hear God called the God of second chances. I understand the sentiment, but I, it doesn't really sit right with me because that's not really what's going on here. It's not as though God is saying, well, here's a second chance. I'll give you two strikes instead of one. Right? It's not that he's just letting us take another swing at it. That's not what grace is at all. God is saying, you failed and you can't succeed, so I'll do it. I'll provide. I'll bring the Savior to bring you back into fellowship with me and crush the serpent head. This is the whole story of Scripture, right? You can follow this thread all through the Bible. Every hero that God raises up for His people is a type of this seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Joshua, the judges, David, right? All the way up to Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of this promise. God not only speaks this word of promise, He also gives us a visual of this promise. In verse 21, We read in verse 21 that the Lord Himself covers Adam's and Eve's nakedness. They had tried to cover themselves. They tried to hide their guilt. They couldn't. So the Lord does for them now. He makes them tunics of animal skins. This is the first record in Scripture of death. It must have been Quite a shock to Adam and to his wife to see the animals slain, the blood poured out, what their sin cost. God covered them. They had to have a sacrifice to cover their sins. Again, this is a a great picture for us of what we get in Christ Jesus. He's the one who crushes the serpent's head. He's also the one who's the sacrificial lamb, who's slain for our sin, whose blood is spilled for our sin. And we're clothed in His Righteousness. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the second Adam who perfectly obeyed his father and crushed the serpent's head. But Jesus does more than simply defeat the serpent and give forgiveness to us. Those things are a means to an end. And that end is the tree of life. As the chapter as chapter three ends, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, but the tree of life is still there. The way is shut to get back to it, but the tree of life is still there. And the hope is that one day this Savior who's coming is going to bring them back 
and it's going to be able to, they're going to be able to taste the tree of life again someday and, and, and enjoy paradise. Not, not just Eden, but, but, but the better than Eden, the heavenly temple, the heavenly paradise. This is what Jesus does. This is why he dies. Right? He, he, he walks up to that flaming sword that's turning back and forth, guarding the way to the tree of life, and he takes it so that we can walk through unscathed. We read this in Luke earlier. Right? He turns to the thief on the cross. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The word means garden. It's referring to the paradise of God, the heavenly Eden of God. We read this in, in Revelation 2, 7, that, that God promises that for the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, you'll taste the tree of life. Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the hope that God holds out to Adam and Eve, and it's the hope that God holds out to us. One day we'll taste the tree of life because of Jesus. One day we'll live forever in the presence of God. And all this curse, all this death and sin will be gone forever. And we'll have that perfect relationship with the Lord that's not stained by sin and that sweet relationship with one another that's not ruined by sin or marred by sin in any, in any aspect. God brings judgment, but He also brings the Gospel here in Genesis 3. How does Adam respond? Verse 20, Adam responds in faith. We see in verse 20 that he names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. God has given a promise, a gospel promise, that there will be a son, that Eve will have a son, that a descendant of hers will be the Savior. And so Adam now turns, he's heard this, and he believes. He turns and he names his wife in this moment. He names her Eve, mother of He's trusting the promise. Adam and Eve here believe the gospel promise of God. It's a model of faith for us, isn't it? They don't have much to go on. Right, just this one promise. A somewhat cryptic promise at that, isn't it? But it's God's word. They've learned to trust his word now. They're trusting the promise that He gives. This promise is sufficient for them. They trust Him. A Messiah, a Savior is coming. Brothers and sisters, we have so much more than they did to go on, don't we? So much more of God's Word to trust Him for. We have a much fuller understanding of the Gospel. We've seen the Son that was promised, our Lord Jesus Christ, and all the glory of His person and work, the, the, the perfection of, of His obedience for us, His love for us, His sacrifice for us, His resurrection for us. Let's trust Him. Let's trust the One the Lord has provided. We are still living in the world that is under Adam's curse. But if we trust the Messiah that God promised then we ourselves are no longer under that curse. Yes, our, our bodies day by day are, are, uh, are failing and wearing out. And we experience many of the miseries of this life. But we are not bound uh, under that curse anymore. We are on our way to paradise in Christ. That's what He gives us. So let's trust Him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank You that when we sinned, you stepped in to save out of your sheer grace for us. Thank you for the one you've provided, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, make our faith firm in him and help us to overcome in him that we might taste the tree of life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our final hymn. I wanted to do Joy to the World, but it's kind of Christmassy. Um, has a wonderful stanza about he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. But we'll save that for another time. This is a good hymn, too. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Number 309. Let's stand and sing together.
rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Jesus, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had heard the saints, he took his seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail, he rules o'er earth and heaven, the keys of death and hell us give. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. He sits at God's right hand, till all his foes submit, and bow to his command and fall beneath his feet. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord the Judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Amen hear God's good word to you. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.